Welcome to the podcast at thatguitarlover.com. I'm your host, Ross Chevalier, and today we are joined by a fellow I've actually never met face-to-face, but I consider a friend because he's such a classy gentleman, Mr. James Ridings, but I call him Jim because he lets me, and Jim is a sales engineer down at Sweetwater. Welcome, Jim. Hey, how's it going, Ross? Happy to be here, man. I appreciate it very much. Uh, So, I don't know that everybody, well, certainly everybody in Canada, I'm sure all our American listeners know, but maybe you could take time to introduce yourself, who you are, what you do, a little bit about the role that you've taken on at Sweetwater and your tenure in the music business overall. Yeah, absolutely. So I work for Sweetwater Sound and we're based in Fort Wayne, Indiana. I'm a sales engineer there and primary role of sales engineer is uh, to work with customers to help them make the right purchases, build systems, you know, either for everything from you know, the band setup or beginning guitarists, for example, Uh, we do band and orchestra all the way up to uh, doing builds for uh, stadiums and recording studios. Uh, Sweetwater does pretty much everything. Myself got started with music really, really young. I grew up around it. My, uh, I'll be 59 here in a few weeks. My sister's eight years older than I am, so I grew up listening to her playing the Beatles, Blood, Sweat, and Tears, you know, music of the era. Plus, my parents were big into music, so I was always interested in music. And We're not that far apart in age. I've got a few years on you, but certainly similar music history from a listening perspective. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, I primarily became a guitarist because, you know, I got an interest in the guitar as a little, little kid. First time I heard Chuck Berry, (laughs) I was hooked. And later on, again, because of my sister, um, got really, really enamored with uh, the band 10 Years After and Alvin Lee. Okay, yeah. In fact, the first song I really, really fully or tried to learn on the guitar, I still can't play it right, was I'd Love to Change the World. And while I can pick through it, I cannot play that solo or or do anything remotely justice to that one. (laughs) Well, I think that's true for all of us at some point. You know, we are inspired by a musician and we find a song that we absolutely want to be killer on and... It may not always work that way. <laughs> yes, that's for sure. That is for sure. And, uh, but, uh, you know, later on when I was, it was definitely when I was in junior high, that what the guy who made me buy a guitar was Tom Schultz of Boston. I mean, yeah. If you think about that, it came out in 76 and I was just going into middle school. So it was pretty much right at the point where I was forming my own musical tastes. And, um, in fact, to the point where, you know, my goal top is named Marianne. So. <laughs> oh, that's very, very cool. Yeah, I can remember that first Boston record. And most everybody I know sitting back on, wow, where did these guys come from? This is, a, it's a brilliant record, you know. And oh, that's, I remember seeing an interview with Mr. Scholes saying that they were an overnight success in just 72 months. <laughs> Well, and the truth is he was probably working on some of the songs even longer than that. You know, that's that's likely true. Thanks, Jim. Appreciate the background. So maybe you could explain what the role of a sales engineer is and, you know, what your area of coverage is. Is it all North America or do you cover the rest of the world? Let's start with what a sales engineer is. 
Yeah. So what a sales engineer is, is obviously the primary role is, is sales and, you know, assisting customers in getting their, you know, uh, their orders completed. But we do a lot more than that. We actually, all of us are experts in one area or other. We actually go through three months of training after we're hired before we're even allowed on the sales floor. And primarily it's to fill in any holes in our knowledge because Sweetwater covers everything now from, uh, you know, piano uh, to video now, you know, video and podcasting is a thing now. And our most recent thing we've gotten into, well, it took us 10 years to uh, leap into band and orchestra. Uh, We, we typically don't do anything in a uh, super quick at Sweetwater. We usually make sure we've got all the pieces in place, but the main thing we do is, uh, we're a, a, a the main contact for our customers. Each sales engineer will have his own list of customers. And if a customer calls in and needs advice on, say, a guitar or uh, a PA system, um, we help them put that together to make sure that they get the right piece of equipment uh, it, you know, the, and everything works together. And um, really, uh, our founder, Chuck Surak, coined the term sales engineer because he didn't feel like our role was just sales. And it's kind of true. You have to know your stuff. Um, Myself, I started as, uh, you know, I have a degree in recording engineering, which I got, uh, you know, back in the 80s and got sidetracked a little bit. My my father had retired and started a business and he needed my help. Well, that actually absorbed about 20 years of my time, uh, but never, never quit playing. And I've always been piddling around, you know, trying to write songs on the side and all that. Um, as for Sweetwater, our, our coverage, we pretty much sell to, I wouldn't say the entire world. There's there's some places we still can't ship to. Uh, and there are a lot of agreements with the companies like, you know, Fender or Marshall. Uh, the territory thing is still alive and well uh, in the music business. Uh, unfortunately, uh, I don't think we live in that world anymore. But well, it's certainly evolving away from it, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think the big thing about that is that um, a lot of the smaller, long-standing companies in the audio business have deals in in regions, and they they want to keep them. It's an honor thing. They're trying to keep their word. I I think we're at the point where that really kind of has to go away at some point. Well, I think that there's, I think it's a challenging time, right? And we'll talk about that a little bit more um, because when you and I were coming up, there was nothing like a sweet water. We had our local shops that we built trust in, and that was where we learned about things, right? Oh, absolutely. There was no internet, and we depended on those folks. And as you say, it's evolutionary. Certainly the internet has displaced a lot of perception of international borders. Now, I remember chatting very briefly with Phil McKnight, and he was relating the story of he is being a guest at Sweetwater and being allowed to take the sales engineer exam. And if I remember what he said rightly, uh, correctly, he didn't do so well. Because yeah, it's a pretty exhausted exam. <laughs> yeah. So you mentioned that it's three months of training before you even talk to a Sweetwater client. And I know you because... I'm so I feel fortunate that you've been assigned as my sales engineer, but I feel like I can call you about pretty much anything. And yeah, I haven't stumped you yet, but at some point, you know, maybe I I'm looking for 
I don't know, something for my daughter's trumpet. And I know enough about trumpet to be able to spell it properly. <laughs> and you might be able to, you know, you may already know the answer or you may be able to direct me to somebody else within the organization that can help with that. Because you did say that people have specializations. Did I understand correctly? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, all of us get trained on everything that we sell and carry. Uh, and any sales engineer can carry on a basic conversation about pretty much anything. Uh, I think that's really what the training is all about. But all of us do have specialties. The great thing is, is we're organized into neighborhoods and we get to know uh, our coworkers. And, you know, I know someone in my neighborhood who's really good with, uh, say, PA systems. And then I might know uh, I, I'm, I'm really good with guitars and the recording stuff. But then... There might be something, let's say, if someone calls in and has a, a question about uh, clarinet, like you said, I know how to spell it. I know what the parts of a clarinet are. I mean, from training and, and, and learning, I know the basics. But, you know, I would reach out if it was something super technical on that. I would reach out to one of my coworkers, and they do the same with me. Uh, you, you didn't get me on that one either because I played trumpet and flugelhorn in college, so <laughs> I could okay. probably cover that's that good. one too. <laughs> well, that's good. That's good to know because my my daughter is very devoted to her to her trumpet, and like I said, you know, I know enough about trumpet to know that kind of blue is the best trumpet record on the planet. And move on. Uh, definitely, there. definitely a great one. That's for sure. Right. So. I know you're talking to people at a variety of different levels of proficiency in their music goals. Our listeners tend to be folks starting out in intermediate players. I have not yet attracted a big audience of professional players. They're probably busy working, and that's good. When you're talking to folks who are starting out, what do they share with you as their primary motivations in becoming a musician? Uh, usually it's, it's just, uh, either they, their you know, family was uh, musicians that there's a lot of that, but a lot of times it's just, they really love music. And I, I get a lot of you know, everywhere from, you know, 12 year olds where their parents are calling in to figure out what to get them for the first instrument, what they need to, I have a lot of people, you know, 50 and up that I work with that have always wanted to play an instrument. They always wanted to play a guitar and now they are taking the time. They have the money. That's one of the biggest things is as adults, we have money to buy the toys. So they're taking the time to do that and, and learn. It's really interesting because it's incredibly diverse. Uh, I work with everything from literally uh, I have uh, uh, one 12 year old. That's the son of one of my other customers. And that whole family actually uh, works with me. Uh, that's just getting started on guitar, but the grandfather plays and he taught the sons and the two sons have sons and daughters that all play as well. So I really work with all levels and uh, that's probably the most challenging is, is that basic explanation of, okay, this is what you need to get started. And, and th this is where to go to get started. Okay. Okay. I know like, we were talking when, when we were both coming up and the motivation was we love the music. We wanted to be able to play it ourselves. I mean, I know at the time it was mostly guys. You know, they thought if they played a guitarist, they would um, 
attract the opposite sex. Yep. And they would meet girls, right. <laughs> well, uh, I carried an acoustic guitar around in high school for exactly that reason. And you know what? Did it work for you? Nope, didn't work. <laughs> yeah, no, okay. So, again, not alone in that. You know, I, I thought if I had a cherry Les Paul sunburst and I worked a whole summer just to buy a used one, that I would become cool. And I was wrong. I, I did not become cool. The reason I asked the question about motivation is that when I go to local music shops uh, that have obviously sell gu guitars and basses and such, and that have lesson desks, when I ask what the younger people, you know, so call that four generations past where I am, want to learn, they're still wanting to learn the, the, mu the music that I loved growing up. Are you hearing the same thing or is that just Yeah, absolutely. No, no, it's absolutely true because particularly on guitar, they're pretty much going to have to focus on that classic rock era because that is the heyday of the guitar. But it is pretty amazing. I'll share a quick story. You know, I, I live in a neighborhood here in Fort Wayne. And, you know, when we were kids, we, we would have the windows rolled down on the car, rolling through the neighborhood in the summer with the music going. And we've got a couple of those kids in, in our neighborhood here. Uh, pretty nice kids. We, we're, they're not too rowdy. But uh, there's this one kid, and I, I think he's graduated and gone off to college now, but he used to drive by. And, you know, I hear him go by and you, you would hear, you know, Marshall Mathers going or, you know, Tupac or, or whatever the current stuff. But he rolled by one day and he was blasting steely dan and then you oh. know you know a couple days later he went by and he was playing something current you know probably ludicrous or something i'm not really up on my rappers but uh but it's really interesting because he's you know he, he would drive by you know especially on the weekends he'd be driving around in his car and he all kinds of music was coming out of that yeah i think what's happened though is that because the way kids get music and the way they consume music now it's by streaming, it's on YouTube or Spotify or whatever. And I think they're a lot less genre locked than we were. I believe that that's the case. I mean, I don't, I don't see, well, I don't see it because I'm not in that generation, but I don't expect that there's anybody sitting around in somebody's basement, a group of people listening to sides of a record, you know, trying to decipher the hieroglyphics on the album sleeve, you know? Yeah, I think you're right. Um, Which I miss. <laughs> well, it's interesting because the, the college-age kids, a lot of them do buy LPs. Um, I think what happens with that, there's something about dropping a piece of vinyl on, on the deck, putting the needle down. There's something about not having random access to the music where it's it's you put the needle down and you're going to hear a side of music that, that's fascinating to the younger generation. Because it's, you know, it's like arcane technology. It's almost like magic to them. But what, what they do is, is is they appreciate that experience. But when they want to go learn a song, they're, they're going to go find a tab or they're going to go to sure. one of the various places to learn a song now, they're, which they're we never had. What we did, which was just pick up and drop the stylus 100,000 times on that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I had a, a friend pass during the pandemic and... I wasn't able to go to his funeral, but they, they had a site set up so you could leave messages or whatever. And I left a story about um, one night, one summer, many years ago, we were driving around doing all the things that you're not supposed to be doing when you're driving. But we were, you know, college age kids. Um, but I had the uh, the then new uh, golden earring uh, cassette, you know, from the album Cut. That's one that had Twilight Zone on it. 
Oh, yes. And we played that song probably 150 times that night. I may be exaggerating, but we played it over and over again to try and figure out the those int- those introductory lyrics. And, you know, nowadays you just go to the Internet and say, what are the lyrics to this song? Well, I and, and I like that because I never understood what Kurt was singing in Smells Like Teen Spirit. But now at least I could look it up. But you're right. I think that there was... There's a magic in sitting down and listening to vinyl. I know, you know, I've got boxes and boxes of it downstairs, uh, but my daughter, who is considerably younger than I am, is huge into vinyl, and she's always hunting, you know, a Japan, a Japan pressing of something. And and I'm, I think that you're right. She, I'm pretty fortunate. I don't know that she listens to a lot of rap, but she listens to such a variety of things, you know, modern jazz, Kamazi Washington type stuff, and mm-hmm. she loves 50s East Coast jazz, Miles and Coltrane, and, and of course, the classic rock, because she didn't have a choice to listen to it. <laughs> exactly. Like, you know, which I think is awesome. Now, I'm curious about something, because you mentioned that you've got expertise and you talk to customers in the recording space. Now, like you, I was trained, you know, apprenticed as a, as a recordist and a mixer. I never got to do production. And you'll remember that, you know, your, your first year working in the studio, you're allowed to get coffee. <laughs> yes, but, but only, if you, only if you don't spill it the first couple of times. Right. Yeah. Don't touch the tape machine. Exactly. Exactly yeah. right. Yeah. Yes. And, then, and then after about six months, you might be lucky enough to be allowed to uh, go to the vault and pull a pull a roll of blank tape for them. Yes. Yes. So long as you never miscoiled a cable. Oh, boy. We could have a podcast on the the uh, cable coiling from the from the eras right there. Oh, so, no kidding. No kidding. <laughs> I learned um, one I, way and then I learned another way when I was actually doing roadie work. So on the subject of recording, do you see that this is something that's generating a lot of interest now? For people recording at home or oh, a ton, a ton. building a home studio or something like that? Yeah, absolutely. It, it, it's a huge part of the industry right now because it encompasses everything from, let's say, uh, a, a grandmother who's you know retired. She's at home. She likes to play the ukulele and wants to record herself playing the ukulele and singing to people doing podcasts to corporate production to, you know, the, the uh, guys. Yeah, I've got a, a group I work with down in Austin that a you know, band down there that they, you know, they're buying building out there they're actually starting to buy some outboard gear to get even more serious but it's a huge part of uh, of the business right now it's it's so accessible and you know and of course there's always and, and there's a ton of people out there that that like to i guess the phrase is make beats but you know do the rhythmic stuff with the with the sequencers and stuff like that oh sure you know sure. Uh, yeah. but uh, but it's so accessible now and yeah, young I, people I, are not afraid of it no, they're not afraid of it. You know, for my for myself, I think I can do more recording now, more simply and more efficiently in my home studio than I ever did in any of the studios where I got to be an apprentice. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. the The problem in the old days was, you know, with tape, it was such a limited resource as far as time. Forgetting all the other issues with the analog oh, yeah. reel, but I remember what you know you could get you know eighteen, nineteen minutes on a reel. So, um, but yeah, it's, you know, today we have incredibly powerful computers 
ridiculous amounts of storage. I mean, you could do 192 uh, kilohertz, uh, 32-bit float recording now. Uh, you can, and I'll say this carefully, you could almost not worry about your levels. I say that because you still have to worry about your levels. There's, there's a common misconception out there that with 32-bit float, you can just throw a mic up. That's really still not the case. But if you're like for a field recorder, it's a great, great way to go because you can't always control levels when you're out in the field. Well, no, and, and I concur on that. You know, one of my friends in high school had one of those cassette field recorders that was about 22 pounds the size of a briefcase. We would go out and we would record bands in their homes and such. And it was, for the time, it was amazing. But I can take a little digital field recorder with me anywhere now and get literally six channels of really high quality sound. Yeah, okay, I'm old school, so I do watch the levels and I do pre-test. But what you get in a limited period of time without a lot of preparatory education is pretty amazing. You know, I mean, you know, you know Bobby Ozinski, I remember taking his classes in mm -hmm. engineering, and it was less simple than it is today. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I do think there is a downside to it because all the difficulties of recording in the analog realm made you be very procedural, very careful about how you did things. Because the two things you didn't have to spare in the old days were tape and time. Absolutely. Now, now, like you say, you can be up and running in an hour. I mean, you can get an interface. You can be up and recording test one, two, three in 10 minutes. Oh, no, it's so simple. And I mean, I think about recording bands when I was younger. The whole concept of doing an overdub, not in a studio, was it was a horror show, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. If, absolutely. If you're yeah. bouncing between a couple of tape machines, which is how we did it, because that was the gear we had, you know, a couple of uh, seven-inch reels and two, and two Sony 377s, I think they were, reel-to-reel -reel decks. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I still have my old uh, Pioneer 7-inch reel, um, and uh, I, I've actually used it. You know, we have plugins in it now, but I've actually used it to, you know, get that analog thing, that sat tape oh, yeah. saturation thing, particularly for oh, guitars. Just... It, it's really cool to get that analog saturation. But I've also a, run into the same thing. It's called that. dropouts. So, yeah, <laughs> right. Any way, any other way. You know, I don't have that anymore. I, uh, I I love the analog technology, but you know, if someone asked me. If you could go back in time and get all the analog gear you wanted or use the modern gear, which would you do? I would choose the modern gear every time. Oh, I'd take, I'd take my UA Apollos every day. It's so simple. No, I might still want to use some of those old microphones, but hey, that's a different thing. Hey, they still make a lot of them or, you know, reproductions of them. Oh, yeah. The mics yeah. haven't changed much. No, I, in fact, you know, I'm not in a position where I can afford the Neumanns that I want, but I'm looking at companies like Warm Audio who are doing really, really excellent reproductions. Oh, absolutely! In fact, I'm I'm right now I'm using a a a, a, a Warm Audio 47 Junior. Um, oh, are you? Yeah, it, you know it, it's a fat mic, but it's a really good mic and it's very flexible. You can use it on voice guitar cabinets. You can use it on acoustic instruments. You know, you've got a couple of different patterns. And it's very reasonably priced too. Well, for yeah, I mean, com compared that to a proper U forty seven, absolutely. That, well, if that, you could even find one, you'd probably be looking at you know ten or fifteen thousand dollars. Downstroke on a house. <laughs> yeah, exactly. When we look at 
gear in general. The channel is That Guitar Lover. So let's talk about guitars and amplifiers. How do you find the quality of the things that we can buy today compared to years past? I mean, I find, and I admit to a bias here, that there is what appears to be an enormous amount of heavy drug use in some people's mind. Oh, oh, I got a vintage 74 Strat or a 72 Les Paul. I was there. <laughs> right, right. Uh, it was honestly, like good. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. And, and, and here's the thing is that it, 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 the 59 Les Paul is the best example of this to me. And I'm a Les Paul guy, so I'm, I'm a little hyper-focused on it. But there was an interview with Joe Perry here recently, last couple of years from Aerosmith. And he's owned probably 10 or 12 real 59 Les Pauls over the years. And he made the comment because they were asking him about it. And he said, well, the thing to remember with a 59 Les Paul was not all of them are created equal. I've got two or three that are really good that I kept, but I had, you know, I've got seven or eight that I didn't keep because they were not good guitars. You well, know, I, 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 I've heard the same thing from guys like Bonamassa. Oh yeah. Yeah. Right. But yeah. He's, he's a real, uh, he, he's a real uh, cultivator of, of the vintage instruments. Oh, I would say a, today, he's a proper geek. I like no, that. Absolutely. Absolutely. The, uh, the thing I would say today, what I find is across the board, instruments and amps are simply way better than they were even 15 to 20 years ago, much less if you go back, you know, 50 years or more. Oh, yeah. I can remember buying my first electric guitar. And kind of funny story, because I know pretty close to when I bought it, I, I was... Uh, I was briefly in the Marines, just one tour in the Marines right out of high school. And I had come home on leave and this was 1984 in May. And I'd come home on, uh, you know, from leave and I called my buddy Chip and he said, Hey, I'm home. You know, I made it home. And he said, Hey, you got, you don't plan anything for tonight. I'm like, well, what do you mean? Just, just don't plan anything tonight. We're going to a concert. Okay. You know? And so went over to his place, he didn't tell me anything. We went downtown Dallas, a little, theater down there called the arcadia and there was this crazy swedish guy named malmstein wailing away on the guitar <laughs> and uh what's really cool is there were two opening acts i don't remember the first one the the middle act was a band called talus and they were mediocre except for the bass player uh the bass player was a fellow by the name of billy sheehan which but he seems to have done rather well for himself yeah 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 he, he, a lot, most people will know who he is um especially if you're a bass player but most rock aficionados know who he is but i went and bought an electric guitar the next day you know and being you know 19 years old with uh you know payroll money in my pocket and i had you know a couple hundred bucks to spend on a guitar well i went out and find that found that cream colored strat copy you know the story, the, the one everybody, you know, everybody has their Strat story. And I bought this thing and I knew, didn't know that much about guitars. I'd been carrying an acoustic guitar around, you know, like, as I said, for a while, but I didn't know that much about electric guitars. And I thought, hey, it looks like a Strat. It must be good. It was absolutely just one step away from unplayable. And it was a, not quite $200 with tax. And it, it was it was almost unplayable. Uh, today... You can buy a $150 Kramer made in China, and, and, and a lot of the inexpensive guitars are. You could probably go gig with that guitar. And that's more about if you, gigging is more about being a good player anyway. Oh, uh, sure. A serious player. But you literally could take that guitar out of the box, tune it, and go gig. Um, yes, it benefits from a setup and some tweaks, but you can you get fantastic 
uh, value these days for just your basic, you know, Chinese built instruments, much less, uh, you know, moving up the food chain a little bit. Well, I, you know, it's interesting that you bring that up. I recently did an experiment because I've always wanted a Les Paul special double cut in TV yellow. And of course, they don't make them anymore. They only come in wine red and they only come out of the customer shop, which I equate with, uh, well, we won't get into what I equate it with, but basically it sounds uncomfortable for the recipient. <laughs> yes, yes. They, they, you basically triple the price. Yeah. And so, but I did find a pair of single cuts, uh, a Gibson brand and an Epiphone. So I arranged with the, with a retailer who's a, a very good local store uh, to try them both out. And in every place except the spray, the Epiphone blew the Gibson completely out of the water at less than one-third the cost. No fret sprout, proper CTS pots, proper audio taper tone controls as opposed to linears, cleaner sound, out of the box. You know, because how many guitar stores who've got kid up on display can afford to put all that stuff through setups. Oh yeah, yeah. No, nobody can afford it. Nobody can do that. It's it's unreasonable to expect it. And so these were both right out of the box and that Epiphone absolutely killed the Gibson. And, you know, so I'm looking at, a, at a, a player who's starting out or maybe it's their second guitar after they've had their Squire or something like that, which by the way, in my opinion, are fabulous instruments. They definitely are today. And, and your way of the races. You could take that other money, put it into lessons or or whatever, so you can enhance your experience on the instrument. So I, I'm I'm pleased to hear that your perspective, which is greater than mine in in terms of scope, that in general, whatever you're buying today, is likely to be pretty darn good. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the the big thing too, and and many companies go through struggles, uh, obviously, and it would be a fair assessment to say that probably from about 2011, 2012 until 2017, when uh, um, you know the when Gibson finally got uh, rid of Henry Jukovic, uh, they definitely had some uh, diminished quality on occasion. Probably not as bad as the internet made it seem, but there were definitely some issues. Oh no, there were. I agree. I agree. There were issues, but again, and, and this is one of the the benefits that you had if you still had local music stores with decent inventory, you could go in and try different ones, right? Yeah, and find the one that wasn't going to need you know luthier work to make it acceptable. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's the biggest thing now is 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 your out of the box experience, even on an inexpensive guitar, is generally very good. I would say right now, though, if you know, if you blow away the preconceived notions we all have, if if you ignore price points and and name cachet and 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 everything else, if I have somebody talking to me, it's like, look, I've got you know fifteen hundred to two thousand dollars I can spend for a guitar and an amp. Uh, you know, and I I, I I know the basics, but I'm a you know beginning to intermediate player. What should I buy? The first place I go is Epiphone because they're inspired by Gibson line. Basically, with the Epiphones, five hundred above five hundred bucks, you're into the inspired by Gibson guitars. Mm -hmm. Between five hundred and now they've got some coming out now that are 
essentially Epiphone, basically they're like a Gibson custom line inspired. Uh, the new Alex Lyson, not not the old one. They have a new uh, Ruby finished one that doesn't yeah. have the piezo uh, pickups in it. It's right. going to be about fifteen hundred bucks, but um, but those guitars, uh, as far as playability, quality, everything you were talking about, are probably the best choice in guitar out there right now. And if not that, if if you have a little bit lower budget, you know the um, Squire, the Classic Vibe series is just phenomenal for you know, five, $600. Oh, it, those classics are killer. I mean, I, I, I've always wanted to build a macabre like Keith Richards. Mm -hmm. I bought a classic vibe. It played better than a player series, just right out of the box, sounded as good. And then I, I, I think, you know, of Tim Mills up at Bare Knuckle Pickups over in the UK. Oh, yeah. And I talked to Tim, we've become associates over the years. And he sent me a set of pickups that he wound for that guitar. And I can't play like Keith, but I can sound like it. <laughs> there you go. You know, and I'm probably 700 bucks Canadian in. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's amazing what you can get from the money. And a lot of it is the, the, the merging of production technologies, obviously, have come so far in the last 50 years. But it's interesting because um, uh, my buddy Chris, uh, who works at Gibson, he's our in-house rep for Gibson and Epiphone. We, we were talking about this, but a lot of people don't know the, the the real secret why Epiphones got so good. They still make the their you know two hundred dollar ish, probably three hundred now, uh, you know player packs, beginning setups that are made you know mass produced in the same plants that you know a lot of those price line guitars are made over in China. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if your Affinity Series uh, Stratocaster wasn't made right alongside the player pack uh, Les Paul. <laughs> I mean, because uh, those type of guitars are, are there's multiple plants who make for multiple brands on their low end. Oh, sure. And and, and also probably, you know, on Fridays, also the, the instruments that are sold on Amazon, right? Oh, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, uh, but, and, but then and, what and happens is, but what, what, Epiphone did is they, in essence, when they decided to go this route for this inspired by Gibson, and they actually had sort of done this beforehand, but this was the what the, where they changed their focus and they have a plant set up now for the Epiphone, the inspired by Gibson, the higher end Epiphones. That's all they make in that plant. Mm -hmm. And they actually modeled the process uh, pretty much after the way they, the production line there in Nashville for Gibson, for the Gibson oh, USA right. line. And it's very, there's actually a lot more hand work going on on that $800 Epiphone than I realized. Obviously, labor is less expensive over there. But with anything you import from China, you know, did you ask for the cheapest guitar that they could get you? Or did you ask for, for what can you make this quality of guitar for? Right. And I think it's very important that, that people realize that. Uh, well, those are two very different questions. Yeah, exactly. And it, it's and about I, your focus. I mean, I Chinese can make high quality products if you pay them to do so. If you pay them to do that. Because, and this this really bugs me because I hear this, well, I never buy a, a Chinese guitar. They're all crap. Really? So you think that those folks who go to work every day go to work with the goal to say, let's see what biggest piece of garbage I can churn out in the shortest piece of time period of time 
I don't care where you're from in the world. If you're building something and you've got any sense of craftsmanship, because I don't know what the politically correct word for that is. There probably isn't one. You said work. So there's nothing politically correct these days about work. <laughs> no. So I believe that they're delivering fine, very, very fine products. And I think that the value to the musician is do what I do. What I do with, you know, some of my clients is I don't let them see the headstock. Play it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> exactly. Play it and find the one that plays for you. I, I still think there's a place for, you know, the, the higher end custom shop guitars and all that. I, I, I do think that, you know, for a, an intermediate player, you know, if you have any kind of budget, it's hard to justify a Gibson Les Paul standard, particularly when you can buy an Epiphone for about a third of the money. And the difference in quality between the guitars, it's there. There is a difference between the Gibson and the Epiphone. But we're now talking about single-digit percentage difference here. Well, and I, th I think that's the key thought, right? It's not 50% better. It might be 2% better if you get a good one. And, and there's always an if because there's a human factor involved in manufacturing no matter what you do, right? Oh, absolutely. Especially with guitars, you cannot completely automate a guitar line. Maybe if you're making an ovation, you might be able to get close and do most of it by machine. It, you know, but really, if you think about it on those guitars, the, the, the back and sides are molded and they always have been. So that really hasn't changed. But uh, yeah, it, it's definitely an interesting time, though. Well, there are a lot of perceptions. You, you talked about the almost like a, a, a being influenced by drugs. People talk about, oh, well, but but this is a, you know, a, a 62 Strat. It's better than anything to make today. And it's like, well, that's not really true. No, no. In fact, if you if you looked at and and I'm not picking on 62 Strats, but if you looked at the ones made in the morning, they're different from the ones made in the afternoon. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah. that's something that, uh, that and younger people all the today people, don't get. Yeah, yeah they, they, I don't think they understand the uh, the uh, Monday morning, uh, Friday afternoon production issues uh, back. You know, well, 40, 50 well, no. years ago. And, and in fairness, well, well, all the pickups are hand wound. Uh, no, actually, they're not. They're wound on a machine. They have always been wound on a machine. The only difference is the person operating the machine may not stop the wines at the same point. Oh, and by the way, you got a different wire on Tuesday than you had on Friday. So, yeah, well, it's interesting, like with, with Gibson, between 58 and probably early 70s, you there was no guarantee what magnets were going to be in your pickups. Oh, no. They, they literally bought uh, magnets from multiple suppliers, and they could be out in the code two, three, four, or five. And that's one of the reasons that, that you know, certain certain pickups are coveted and copied. Uh, well, well, you know, take the Peter Green guitar, inadvertently wound backwards and then reverse phase accidentally on the repair. And all of a sudden you get this unique sound. And actually they have a, the, they have three different models of the Peter Green. Now they've got the super high end one, the the uh, you know the twenty thousand dollar one, the Gibson Custom. They've got a Gibson Standard, and now they have an Epiphone. But they all have, you know, with modern technology, they can replicate those pickups pretty closely. Well, they, I, I I agree, I agree. And if if I were inclined to go that route, I would try the Epiphone first because I think, in terms of value, and you know, I crossed the hundred guitars threshold a long time ago. 
because I love guitars. I think that they're pieces of art. And I don't think any of them are, same, are the same. And I don't really care about, you know, the methodology. I recently, I committed an experiment and I bought a harp guitar from a company, company in Donegal, Ireland called Emerald. And the whole thing is carbon fiber. Okay. And, and you would say, well, then they're all going to be exactly the same. Oh, actually, that's totally not true, but I know a little bit about carbon fiber, so... And it's absolutely not true. Yes, the methodology of laying down the thin sheets and the, and the epoxy is consistent, but everyone is made one at a time, you know, and the bridges are carbon fiber, but they're made one, at, you know, they're, they're different because they have to be fitted with the... Whoever makes ghost pies of... Uh, well, probably... Uh, um... <clears throat> Oh, you had to say it. Now I won't remember it. Um, yeah, yeah. It's a it's a Canadian company. I know. I know them. Yeah, yeah. It's it's Graftech. Yeah, it's Graftech. That's exactly yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great guys. Uh, they. That's one other cool thing that happens at Sweetwater. We actually have vendors come in with new products and demo them for us. And um, the boys at Graftech were in here just a few weeks ago. Um, something really, really cool that I always speculated was possible. I always wondered idly you know, why we still had to deal with lock nuts with the Floyd Rose. And I was talking with, and I cannot remember the gentleman's name, who uh, is the principal there at Graph Tech. Super nice guy, very, very geeky uh, on the engineering side, as all of us in the business are. But I was talking with him and he kind of confirmed it. So Floyd Roses were designed in Kaler's not too much longer after that, late 70s, early 80s. Right. The first commercially available locking tuners didn't hit the market until late 80s, early 90s. So what GraphTech has done, they've actually come up with a replacement nut. You, you pull the lock nut completely off, and they have right. it's made out of the uh, the tusk material, I'm assuming is what it's made of. And they have this replacement nut. And it's, a, it's kind of a strange-looking one because you've got the slot for the strings, and then it opens pretty wide. Yeah. Um, but they brought in a guitar that they had put one of these on and put locking tuners on this guitar to have Floyd Rose on it. And I will tell you what, I could not knock that guitar out of tune. And I tried very seriously. And just having the locking tuners took over the role that the lock nut did. So you get a consistent tension so the, the tremolo right. can return. And lo and behold, we no longer have to deal with a lock nut if we don't want to. And, and for and for users, there that's going to be a whole lot easier because it's one less piece of stuff to deal with when it comes time to change strings. And, oh, absolutely. And, and for players, say, changing strings on a guitar with a Floyd Rose, Floyd Rose needs some kind of uh, lubricant. Yes, yeah. I, I, I would engineer, say your best engineered, engineered malted beverage. <laughs> yes, best engineered in the highlands of Scotland to get through it. Kind of like restringing a 12-string Rickenbacker. Oh, yeah. Tw yeah, 12-string Rickenbacker for me would require... Um, Boy, yeah, I, I would have to be pretty well lubricated for that. Yeah, no, I, I in fact wrote an article on that, and it's gotten a lot of upticks, um, but it basically suggests that you need to become either an alcoholic or a drug addict to get through that alive. <laughs> yeah, I, I was super fortunate when I was taking guitar lessons in the mid to late 80s. Uh, I was actually trading, uh, my, my guitar teacher, you know, he had a band in, in the Dallas area, and um, I was fortunate that 
I basically was able to, when, when they were out playing the clubs or whatever, I would tech and roadie for them, you know, primarily as guitar tech, but I helped them lug stuff in and out. But I, I traded those, you know, every one of those sessions was a free lesson for me. And Joey, uh, they played a lot of, you know, for the time, what we called metal, a lot of it wouldn't be considered that today, but, uh, he he was a string breaker and of course if you know anything about the early floyd roses they had too many sharp edges the particularly the saddles were they were oh. really sharp but you, you would break strings pretty quickly on them and i, I, I got to the point where i had to change early, i was convinced in the early days that they were that they were that they had stock in a string company <laughs> yeah yeah you, you you would have thought that uh, um they had stock in Ernie Ball or something. That's for sure. But uh, the interesting thing was, is though I, I learned how to change a you know G or a B string by the top by the end of the song, and it's just one of those things. Once you do it enough times, and of course we're talking about a single string change, yeah, not yeah, the whole you, thing. Yeah, the rest of the rest of the bridge is still vaguely floating. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny now there, there's a phrase that came along much later and I wish I had known it back then. Uh, and I've heard people say, you know, block with a sock. So basically you just take a rolled up brag or a sock and you, yep. you jam it in there and you block the, the Floyd Rose in position and then you can take all the strings off. I just held it with one with my left hand uh, while you know, I, I it's a whole little process, but I, I got so good at it. Uh, and then Joey got uh, he had one guitar that had a Kaler on. He basically had two. He had his main and a, and a backup, and then later he got the the uh, it was a Washburn with a Kaler, which was that was the the thing there at the end of the eighties. Uh, Kaler was a hot hot commodity for a little while, and if he broke a string on that Kaler, he got one of the Floyds. It was like, nope, I'm not touching that thing. I I, I never figured those out the same way as the Floyds. No, I, you know it's funny, or I can because I can remember when the Kalers first came out and they were the next big thing. And now you look at, you know, I, and I understand that the websites are always looking for content, but I don't know. Somebody must have, they must all have gotten together and said, okay, you know what? It's July twenty twenty three, and it's beat up Kaler month <laughs> because I've seen more articles in the last thirty days. You know, trying to take Kaler out and beat it with a hammer than I'd seen in the previous several years. So either there's no innovation in writing or they all work for the same company. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, you know, it's not AI doing the writing because it would be it would it would be uh, much there'd be much more variety in it. Right. <laughs> yeah. True enough. So, a, I think that's a I think that's a fair point. I think things do run in cycles with that because well, ab absolutely they do. Absolutely, they do. So we've been talking about, obviously, the value proposition that Sweetwater brings, having all these different options and these highly trained professionals. How do you find that you bridge that model, which, I mean, let's be, let's be honest, that is where the world's going, to where you and I grew up, the personal attention of a local music shop? Yeah, how, do it, it, it's a, how do you bring the benefits that we had when we were young to younger people today who may not even have a music a guitar shop in their town anymore yeah the biggest thing is it's is just really good communication with them and, and listening you ask questions you find out what they're trying to accomplish we, we you know I, I say this many times a week that we definitely don't want the the local music stores to go away uh, that's not something Sweetwater's trying we're not trying to run the local music stores out of business because the best we can do, if you break a string, the best I can do is overnight you a set. 
No. Um, if yeah. you need luthier work, yeah, we have great luthiers at Sweetwater. They're swamped. We get tons of work in, but you would have to ship your guitar to us. Then it would have to be worked on, then it'd have to be shipped back. And it's really not practical uh, for well, most people to do. I, I agree. And I, I'm really happy to hear you say that, Jim, because I don't see the two as mutually exclusive. I actually see them as mutually beneficial. Well, I think we have to, they have to work. We have to work together, even if it's not directly uh, with them. But we have to kind of work together because, you know, we have a neat model, especially with buying guitars that I, that it, other than, you know, some of the, some of the, um, uh, you know, boutique, small boutique shops do this, but, you know, we have our inspection process. We, we actually had to change it recently uh, because, you um, just moving too many guitars we had to move that inspection point to 399 instead of 299 right um, but basically one of the things we do first is you know, we do those inspections when uh when the guitars arrive they're inspected uh the inspection isn't a setup but we go through them and make sure that everything is functional and that it meets the you know action height and everything is within the the parameters that either fender or gibson whoever the manufacturer is gives to us you know, it should be the action height should be between here and here. But one of the things we do get to do is we actually take pictures of those guitars after the inspection. So someone can actually at least see the guitar and see their guitar and actually pick a specific one out. The thing we can't do, and, and you had mentioned this earlier, thing I can't really do is I can't really put it in your hands. Sure. Um, you know, and I, I kind of can uh, because we do have a, a you know, a, a essentially no questions asked 30 day return policy. And the only reason it's a 30 day policy is Chuck Surak, our founder found out many, many years ago, is you have to have a policy in place. It's a case by case. I have accepted returns that were quite a bit past the 30 days, but we have to have some, some general rule in place. Yeah, you, you, you got to put a line in the sand. Otherwise, exactly. there, otherwise there's no guideline. There's no guidance. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. but, you know, but what we, what, what we can do and, and what I try and do, particularly on guitars, cause I, 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 I'd say probably half my customers are guitars. The rest would be, you know, a variety of, of the different things we hear. But one of the things that we can do is, is to make sure that, you know, we talk through, uh, particularly new players, you know, what kind of music do you listen to? What kind of music do you want to play? Have you played a guitar before? If you have, what do you have now? You know, kind of where are you and where are you trying to go? And those values you talk about from when we were kids, those personal attention, we can still do that over the telephone. It's right. not quite the same, but it's funny because it seems very novel today for a company to do what we do and, and have, you know, sales engineers, you know, assigned to specific customers, someone you always work with. But the truth of the matter is, Sweetwater was doing that since 1979. We've never done it any different way. And any good company still does it that way. I just happen to think there are a lot of companies that are poorly run. Or to be, to be kind, I think there are a lot of business owners who went through the 1980s, uh, late 70s, 1980s business school mentality where the Harvard Business School grad, he's talking about widgets and just-in-time inventory and all these other things. And they're forgetting that the customer is the most important thing because if you don't take care of the customer, they won't come back and you're going to have a warehouse full of widgets. I took a few business classes when I was getting my, my recording degree. And I remember them talking about 
this just-in-time inventory. And I said, that's insane because it's particularly if you're a, a production, if you're, if you're producing products, so you have just-in-time inventory. So what you're saying is you're going to get the inventory, your, your materials just in time to manufacture a product and get it out the door. And the answer is yes, that's exactly what you want to do. I'm like, no, that's exactly what you don't want to do for a long list and litany of reasons. First of all, if there's any disruption in, in the supply chain, uh, hello, COVID, uh, it's well, a disaster. Yeah, we, and we saw how it broke down and how it's still breaking down. Right. Exactly. But but not not just that. You if you're a manufacturer and you've got to have six months, a minimum of six months worth of materials ahead of time because of fluctuations in market prices. You you can't price a product and then get just in time and build up the current rate inventory. That's 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 a recipe to be going out of business. And, well, and the, makers, the makers are jacking their prices so often now. I mean, I can't even imagine how it would be if they were buying everything on demand. I mean, look, just look, for example, at the at the purchase price of a potentiometer. Oh, absolutely. Like it, it's doubled in 12 months. It's not a better product. No, no, it's not. It's, it's about the same. And that's probably a good thing. At least it hasn't gotten worse. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, on a good day, it's the same. Yeah. It, it, it's amazing to me that I can remember... And of course, this 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 puts our age group pretty specific. I can remember going to Radio Shack and buying a 250k potentiometer for 31 cents, and it was, I believe, it was. It, it may not have been a CTS. I think it was an Emerson or something. But it was a quality product. It wasn't. No, it was a good quality product. No, I, I I hear you. When I was in high school and I was building pedal boards. I would go to Radio Shack and I was buying Switchcraft quarter-inch jacks. I think they were forty-nine cents each. Yeah, that sounds about right. You know, so it, that has gotten out, out of hand. As we wind down, because I want to be cognizant of your time, and I've also learned a great deal about how long people will listen to a podcast. We saw a boom in guitar sales during the pandemic that I don't know that anybody really expected. No, no, that nobody predicted it. Absolutely and, not. And now, of course, folks are getting back to doing the things they were doing before. There is, factually, there's a, a, a big glut of used instruments that is hitting the market. And when I say used, that means pulled out from under the bed. Yeah. Because <laughs> they never actually did get played. Yet, we're also in a very competitive marketplace where the whole industry is slowing down. Uh, demand's not the same as it once was, so... We'll see more promos, and uh, I won't mention any particular company names that start with F or G who keep jacking the prices because they're on heroin. But there are other companies who are, they're responding aggressively. And so now there are folks who bought instruments, not use them. They list them on Reverb or on your service exchange, and they're not selling because they're trying to get back what they think they paid for it, and the market is not there anymore. And so as a consequence, some of these folks are saying, okay, well, maybe I should play it. You and I, and let's just say we have tenure as opposed to being old. Okay, I like that. Tenure, and we know that music's a journey. It's not a destination. So what guidance would you offer to musicians or want to be musicians to keep on the path? 
to stay on the journey? Uh, I think the biggest thing that I would say is, is, you know, right out of the door when you first start playing, you have to put in that work. The first three to six months, you've just got to make time to do the basics, learn to tune the instrument, learn to change the string you just broke yourself, and just really just play and learn to make those basic bar chords and the basic chord forms in those first few months because those fundamentals that's what that's what makes you a player or not and it is guitar is one of the most irritating instruments to learn i'll, I'll say it that way it, it, it is can be one of the most frustrating instruments to learn because it is quite difficult to wrap your head around as a new player and oh, those, as you said with tenure we, we, we don't think of it that way sometimes <clears throat> but it's really learning the basics putting in the work those first few months to get the basics down instead of what I did, you know, I played trumpet and flugelhorn. Well, I learned the proper way and I had the practice card and I practiced, you know, an hour, hour and a half a day and filled out the card. That's the way you should approach the guitar. Most people won't do that, but it's putting in that work just those first few months and not getting frustrated, but, but, you know, learning to play the chords, learning the, you know, uh, on, I think back in the in our day, you know, learning to play Mary Had a Little Lamb, it was, it was was one of the things you learned to play on an instrument to get your first melody. Learn those things first. Because once was, you get those what, basics what down. What was that first song that we used to play? Lay Down Your Head? Tom Dooley. Oh, Tom Dooley. Yep, yep, yep. That's, yeah, that's still in the, uh, oh gosh, I can't remember the name of the Probably publisher. still in the Mel Bay book. Yeah, Mel Bay, yeah, yeah, it, it still is. Yeah, absolutely. But, but no, to, I, to put I, in that I, work early on. It is a process and it's a journey. Sometimes I feel like there's less diligence or interest to put the time in. And maybe that's just a what so, you know, like, yeah, but I'm not even I, sure I, that's I, a generational thing. Yeah. Because I think about it because my fingers hurt. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and that's something you pass it. But also, you know, to once you get those basics down to you know, learn a few songs, but get out of your comfort zone. Don't just learn the stuff you want to play or the stuff you listen to. Try something very different. For me, yeah. when I get in a rut, of course, I you know I've got a, I don't have a hundred guitars, but I've got uh, somewhere between ten and fifteen. It's in flux. My nephew has a few of them right now. Sometimes it's just a matter of okay, I've been pl- trying to learn this song on the electric for three weeks, and I'm I'm at an impasse. Well, I'll reach over and grab the acoustic and work on something totally different. The great thing if you're a player today is there are innumerable services that you can use to learn songs. And and, and really, I mean, it, it's it's super easy to get that information and learn a song now. And you can even almost learn it correctly. Uh, we, we can have a whole podcast on my opinion of, of modern tabs. Uh, yeah, <laughs> the notes no. are right, but they're not in the right place on the fingerboard. The expanse of music that's available to us is so amazing that hopefully it helps people if they just see the opportunity to step out of the rut. You know, a great song isn't all about flash, you know? No, no, it's not, not all. about how fast you can burn up the fingerboard. And, you know, and this is just my opinion. I think that Tom Petty was one of the great American poets. And you, but you look at the music, it's cowboy chords, kids. Yeah, oh, absolutely, absolutely. 
uh, you know, Mike Campbell did most of the the lead work, and and you know the, you know he he was you know partnered he partnered up with Tom Petty for decades and decades. Oh yeah, um, but Tom would write on Tom would write on an acoustic or on his Rickenbacker those open chords, and then Mike would come in and say, "Great," and he would add the little bits and flourishes. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Mike would add the hooks in. Yeah, exactly. And I think you you touched on something, and we've kind of been dancing around. One of the things that a new player should absolutely do is go find a good teacher. And a good teacher, and this is important, is when you sit down for that first lesson, there should be a uh, some kind of connection with your teacher. It, and it, sometimes it takes a couple of lessons. But if you if you're oh, taking absolutely. lessons and you sit down and it's just that you're just not gelling with the person, you need to get a different teacher. And it's not a knock on that teacher. I've taken some. We've got a, a we we have a Sweetwater Academy basically on our campus there in Fort Wayne. We have uh, locals come in and can take music lessons, and we have a phenomenal staff of, of teachers there. And I was taking lessons from Tom, great guy, phenomenal player. He and I get along famously. And it wasn't it was a bad experience in lessons with him because I was getting things done, but it wasn't what I needed to inspire me. And that's one of the things is that I haven't in probably a couple of years now, uh, but it's on my agenda to go back and take some lessons again, take lessons for. Uh, you know, four months or six months and do something different and, and break out of that rut again, because it's the tendency for pe- for people learning today. So if I'll just go to YouTube or one of just whichever service you want to name, the guys, the guys that start with G and guys start with F both have their services and there's, a you know, tons of other ones. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can't you can't go on the Internet without tripping over someone who's got a, yeah. uh, the greatest but, but, the, but the issue with course for yeah. ninety nine dollars. Right. Exactly. But the issue is, is that you need somebody who is a, an experienced player and more importantly, an experienced teacher to actually watch you play, listen to you play and critique that. And then they can actually work on the thing, the technique things that you're missing. I have seen so many ads on YouTube, forget guitar theory, give us money and do this. And it baffles me why anyone would think for a second that you could make music without understanding at least something about the theory of music. You simply can't do it. And you're learning theory, even if you're learning, okay, here's the E power chord, here's the A power chord, here's the D power chord. Guess what? The fact that you know that those are power chords and not major and minor chords, and you know what the notes are, you just learn music theory, or at least a small piece of it. Well, and it's the start, and then you decide how deep you want to go. But I think that's I think that's the probably the most important closing thought for our episode today is to get a good teacher, as you say, that you connect with. Because like you, I've taken lessons a lot of times, and every one of those people was a great musician, but only a couple of them that I look forward to going to the lesson. Yeah, exactly. All right, man. Thank you so very much for your time. I really do appreciate the investment. And absolutely, you. I've thought of several things that we could do other episodes on. Yes. Well, well, hit me up here. Uh, Usually Wednesday evenings, I've got a little bit of time, and about once a month, I've I get uh, a Friday off. So you know, we can definitely do some more down the road. And uh, I apologize for the dog; she's been good for over an hour. But. Well, hey, really appreciate the opportunity and you know, d- definitely reach out again. I'd love to do this again. Well, thanks so much for the podcast at thatguitarlover.com. I'm Ross, and my guest is Jim Ridings from Sweetwater. So, Jim, thanks a lot. And, folks, I really appreciate you listening. Always feel free to post a comment, post a question. 
It's just me, man. I read everything and I respond to all. Thanks so much for your time, guys. Until next time, peace.